to uh, be here this morning and to be able to open God's Word collectively together. We've been on a series through the book of Acts. We've called it Called by Jesus. Called. Called to all kinds of things. As Jesus builds His church, as He, he, he transforms and changes our lives, as He works in us and through us, uh, we seek to bring honor and glory to Him. We're on chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 3. We've uh, worked through the first two chapters of the book of Acts. We've learned that the book was written by Luke, uh, uh, one of the uh, followers of Christ. He writes a a thorough account, two volumes, the book of Luke and also the book of Acts. He writes to Theopolis, uh, a Roman who uh, were not sure, but maybe the one who, uh, who stood with Paul when he was on trial before the Romans prior to his death. He gives a thorough account of all that happens. We learn the importance of the Spirit. In the first two chapters in particular, we see the Spirit working and the importance of the Spirit in ministry and walking with Christ. The importance of being filled with the Spirit and that He will do a work in and through us in order to accomplish the goal of the mission of Jesus Christ. And here we're going to see that that continues in these next ten verses of chapter 3. And we're also going to see the opposition that rises up. It's going to start to come in clear focus. If the first uh, two chapters and the first ten verses could be attributed to being the main character of the Holy Spirit, what we're going to discover, probably not this week, but we're going to see next week in particular that Satan is probably the main character in the next few chapters, next three chapters. And I would encourage you to take a glance ahead in your own personal time and study. Hear now from God's Word, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, reading from the English Standard Version. Let's uh, hear now, uh, as recorded by Luke. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. It was the ninth hour. A man lame from birth was carried, whom they had laid daily at the gates of the temple, that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about the temple... Seeing, I'm sorry, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now Peter directed his gaze at him and did as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, may the word of your scriptures come alive for each one of us here this morning. Lord, you know the challenges that are ours from the week that has just passed. You know the distractions that are fighting for our attention. The anxieties that uh, uh, usher away your peace. You know what lies ahead, for you are God. You hold all things. All things. You know the beginning from the end, and we can trust you. And so, in this moment, in these times here, these next uh, 20 or 30 minutes that we consider your word, would you speak to us, we pray. 
Would you give us hope and encouragement? Would you give us strength and vision? Would you change and transform us into your likeness? Father, we ask that, we would help, that you would help us to see you in all your glory. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. We didn't spend much time in Acts chapter uh, 2, verses 42 through to 47. Uh, it's an important segment of Scripture and something that's been preached on much. We just briefly touched on it last week. Uh, we talked about how, how as 3,000 were added to the number after the proclamation of Peter on the temple steps, things began to change. They devoted themselves in verse two, uh, 42, uh, yeah, 42 to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Awe came over every soul in verse 43. Awe came over every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all and any who had need. And day after day, attending to the temple together, breaking in bread and in their homes, they received their food uh, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being uh, saved. It has often been said that this is the description of a spirit-filled church. A spirit-filled church has a few things. They're devoted to the apostles' teachings. A spirit-filled church is a church that gathers together and fellowships together. A spirit-filled church is a church that breaks bread together. Now that can be understood in two ways. First of all, it can be understood as you gather around the table together. And together you break bread and drink of the cup in remembrance of Christ. But it's more than that. It could also be understood in the context of sharing meals together. Friends, we've lost this in our culture, haven't we? We're so quick to pull into our garage, go through the backyard and into the house. We rarely see our neighbors. We rarely invite people over. Yet in the spirit-filled church, this is a, a, a notable thing. They believed together and, and, and the things that they had, they held loosely to. They held loosely to, they sold things, and, and, and they didn't hold tightly to the things that they had, and they distributed things. They, they saw their possessions as that as something they were to steward, not something they were entitled to. They also went to the temple, and, and, and in corporate gathered worship, they, they worshipped and they prayed together. This is a spirit-filled gathering of believers. But they didn't just gather together in corporate worship. It also says in the text that they also gathered together in people's houses. Why? To worship and to pray. And ultimately, God was being praised. His favor was on the people. And people were being added to the numbers of those who were being saved daily. Spirit-filled church. Oh, oh, that we would be the spirit-filled church. Oh, that this would be the marks that identify us. Even in our, 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 our direction, our strategic priorities, we talk about being a church that thrives. What, what do we mean by that? Well, that we would thrive spiritually. That, that we would walk in step with the Spirit. That we would hold loosely to the things that we have. That, that's what it means to thrive spiritually. We long to be a community that is authentic. We want to build authentic community where we're joining together, enjoying each other's company. That's what we long for. That we wouldn't carry the burdens that uh, are, are ours alone, but together. That we'd enjoy laughter and fun, but also times of prayer and worship and study together. And then ultimately we long that lost people would be reached. 
that lost people would be reached. Day by day, that people would be added to the kingdom uh, through the expression of this fellowship as the Spirit of God moves and works and stirs in us. That's what we long for. And so this is the evidence of a Spirit-filled church. And, and here we're going to see in these next ten verses the outworking of this. The outworking of this. In particular, we're going to see the many wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles. Paul's, uh, Luke, I'm sorry, is going to give us some handles, some specifics. A specific story that illustrates the point that Luke is making in verse 43. Now remember that there are many wonders, many signs that were being done through the apostles. This is one account that we read today. Notice how this begins. There's a few things that we can uh, learn from this text. First of all, it says, Now Peter and John, they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, for it was the ninth hour. I love that. This verse, or this concept, has captured my heart in a new and fresh way. Uh, You've heard me speak about it uh, many times, and I hope that you will hear me speak about it many more times, because I think it is critical. It's critical. See, 3,000 were added to the number when? When they had gathered together and they prayed and worshipped together for 10 days. Here, as a part of the natural rhythm of Peter and John, the natural rhythm of, of seeking the Lord. They were going to the temple. Now, they were still Jewish in many ways. They were still sorting out. What does it mean that Jesus Christ had died on the cross and that he was risen? What does it mean to walk in the freedom of Christ? And so, so as a part of their daily rhythm, they're going there for prayer and worship. Corporate prayer and worship. See, there's a theme here all through the book of Acts. What you will notice is that ministry comes out of a walk with Christ. How are you doing? How are you doing? Uh, this is the one area where it's, it's by and large a, a reality between you and God. And friends, you can fake it. But only for so long. How, how are you doing? Where is your emphasis with your walk with God, your personal walk with God? Where's the emphasis with your corporate walk and worship with God? Where, where is it? This is so critical. It's so important. See, we tend to want to put busyness in front of worship and prayer. It's so easy to sort of be busy doing God's stuff, God's things, and everyone will pat you on the back and say, great job, You're, that's fantastic. But when it gets out of alignment, friends, disaster is coming. The prophet Isaiah expresses this so clearly. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6 with me in your scriptures. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll see this again. And, and I think there's some parallels with Isaiah chapter 6 and ourselves. Look what it says here in verse 1. Now in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Why does he bring up King Uzziah? Well, the, the, the nation of Israel had enjoyed uh, all kinds of prosperity because King Uzziah was by and large a godly king. He was godly. Uh, he had asked God to turn back a uh, uh, time to add to his days. You see, Uzziah, Isaiah had gone to him and said, listen, listen. 
Put yourself, your events, your home, your household, all those to put them in order. Because your time is coming to an end. He, he had put his things in order. But he asks Isaiah, could you ask the Lord to give me more time? And, and God extends his time by 15 years. Now he's dead. There's questions, there's concerns. Who's going to lead? The, 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 the nation is feeling the anxiety of pressure from the outside world. Isaiah the prophet is feeling anxiety from the outside world. What does he do? I love what he does. He goes to the temple. <laughs> he goes to worship, to pray. And we know that history tells us that Isaiah could see trouble was lurking. Manasseh was the next king. Now, now Manasseh took over when he was 12 years old. And he was the wickedest king to serve. And he served the longest, 55 years. Uh, he offered his children up uh, in, 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 in uh, a temple worship. He burned his boys alive. So that they could prosper. Horrific stuff. Uh, he got rid of the word of God. Um, he went after the prophets. In Hebrews, you'll read about how some prophets were, were sawn in two. Remember reading that? Likely Isaiah. Uh, history tells us that Isaiah was likely stuffed into a log under the leadership and reign of Manasseh that had been bored out and sawn in two alive. Oh, Oh, the wickedness. In the midst of this anxiety, look what he does. He goes to the temple. And he says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and his train, his glory, filled the temple. Friends, going to the temple, worshiping God in spirit and in truth, God inhabits the praise of his people, is so important. Above him stood seraphim, says verse 2. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to the, the other saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. One calling to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. One calling to the other, the other calling to the one. Why not? Because God is confused about who he is. No, God knows he's holy. But God alone is deserving of all worship and praise. He alone is to be set apart. He is holy. There's none like him. And there in the temple, as Isaiah looks up, he sees this vision, this vision of God and the two seraphims, one calling to the other. And even now, one calls to the other. Even now, throughout all time, one call to the other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. It goes on to say, in the midst of the worship, Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
See, Isaiah the prophet, he goes and he goes to find God, and in the midst of finding God, he realizes his own brokenness. He realizes his own sinfulness. He realizes that he is far from God. And so, in that moment, there's a, a, an act of repentance. God, God, I'm unclean, I'm unworthy. I I have nothing to offer. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And all the earth will fill his glory. And yet woe is me, for I am lost. Friends, as we gather together in the sacred moments of seeking the Lord, both corporately and individually, we come to a place of recognition of our brokenness, our sinfulness, our inability to bring change and transformation. See, God has got to be at the center of our worship. Jesus Christ has got to be the one who's captured our hearts and our imagination. Why do I bring this all up? Why? Because then one of the seraphims brings a, a, a burning coal to the lips of, uh, of Isaiah with tongues and it touches his lips. It touches his lips and his mouth and it says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins have been atoned for. In other words, what, what's happening here is he is being cleansed. He is receiving the atonement. And then what happens? I heard the Lord, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Lord, send me. Send me. Friends, it's out of worship and prayer and intimacy with God that we do mission. It's out of worship and prayer and intimacy with God that we do mission. Friends, uh, consider your life. How's the mission going? Have you had conversations with people about Jesus Christ the Lord? Have you been engaged with people about Jesus Christ the Lord? Have you been talking to lost people about Jesus Christ the Lord? Have you been engaged with the world around you, you know, spilling over onto them? It comes out of your walk with Christ, your intimacy. See, the the fruit uh, of walking intimately with Christ is, the Lord added to their numbers, daily. ah, I would suggest that the biblical model is we need to know him. We need to make him our priority. We need to make sure that it's not five minutes of prayer. It's the hour of prayer. We need to make sure that we're not, we're not sloughing off and, and, and allowing prayer to be the last thing we need. Friends, listen. Our intimacy with God, everything competes with it. Everything And if you don't have a settled conviction and determination to make that your priority, it'll it'll go wayward. What do I mean by that? Everything competes with it. 
We tend to think if we, if we only had more finances, then we wouldn't be so anxious. And, and then we wouldn't, we wouldn't be wrestling with things. If we only had more finances, then we would have peace. That passes all understanding. Friends, no way. So what do we do? We pursue the mighty dollar. We give up time and space and energy. We, we pursue the mighty dollar and we think that that will give us what we want. No, it won't. Is it wrong to be a hard worker? No, we need to be people who work passionately. Why? Because it brings glory to God. But we got to keep things in check and balance. Uh, what about leisure? If we only got a rest, man, if I just need a break. If I, if I had a great vacation, then, then, things would be, then I would be okay. Is it wrong to have leisure? No, I love leisure. <laughs> ask my boys, ask my wife. I love it. I, I think it's fantastic to get out in the bush. That's what I love to do. I, I love getting out quieting. There's nothing wrong with it. But when it replaces God, there's something wrong. Something wrong. Everything competes with your walk with God. Sleep. Sleep competes with your walk with God. I'm so tired. Oh, man, I'm just so tired. Hey, this is a conversation I often have. I, I, I don't like the mornings. I like sleeping in. And there's this competition in my heart, and I reconcile, and, and I argue with, I'm a great lawyer in bed. I don't, I don't need to get up. I mean, the kids have been up all night, and I, I've gone up two or three times, and I, I'm so tired, and I went to bed late last night because I, I, I was working or having wings or watching sports. Or... <laughs> God, God, you'll understand. Right? Just this once. It's not a big deal. I'm going to sleep in. Friends, Sleep doesn't replace God. We need to to understand the importance of our own personal worship. Busyness in our household, busyness, it'll often replace God. Our quiet time around the table as a family. It's a little chaotic here. (laughs) Too much going on. Let's skip that. God will understand. And I'm not preaching legalism here. You, you, don't, you don't leave here saying, oh, Scott's a legalist. That's, I'm preaching relationship. What's your relationship like with God? Where is he on your priority list? And don't you give me verbal answer, top, Scott, Scott. He's the top. What's what's your action? When was the last time you woke up and spent a half an hour, an hour with God just because? Just because. When was the last time you you gathered? you, You just couldn't wait to come to prayer meeting corporately. 
just to be with God's people, worshiping together. Oh, like, I just can't wait. I mean, I'm not going to say anything out loud. That's not me, but I, I just want to be in the presence of God as he inhabits the praise of his people. I just, I got to be there. Friends, I, I speak this because this is my battle. And I'm guessing it's yours. And everything comes out of this. Everything. So, so look at the fruit in your life. Look at the fruit in your life. If you see chaos, it probably comes back to your walk with Christ day by day. And look at the fruit in your life. If you're not seeing people coming to Christ, if you're not having godly conversation with lost people, if you're not seeing God at work in and through you, it comes back to your walk in intimacy with Christ. And the world has sold us a bill of sales that leads to death. See, the disciples understood the importance of corporate worship. Uh, They understood the importance of of seeking God together. They, They understood ministry comes out of an intimate walk with Jesus. They got it. Oh, that we, the people of God here in Spruce Grove and Parkland County, that we would get this. That we would be like Isaiah, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of change, we would go to the temple and what? Seek the Lord. Then we'll hear the call. Whom shall I send? Send me, Lord. Here I am. It's out of worship that we go on mission. Not the other way around. When we're not walking in step with the Spirit of the living God, friends, we can make more of a mess than we can do good. Now, God honors His Word. I know that. It will not return back void. But when we're intimately connected to God, when the Spirit of the living God fills us, listen, then we walk in unity with Him. And what I would suggest is as you walk with him, you see his glory, and it ultimately causes you to praise him all the more. See, look at the text as it continues on. You see, there was a lame man. He was lame from birth. Uh, He was being carried um, daily to the gate, the temple called Beautiful, to ask for alms. This gentleman was every day carried to go and to ask others for help at this gate. He was likely, from the text as you read on, and we'll get there eventually, probably in his 40s. This was his plight. He, he couldn't kind of walk. No, he had to be carried by others. And he would sit at the gate where there was a funneling that would happen. So people would pass him by. And he would yell, alms for the poor. Alms for the poor. Now, let's talk a little bit about money. Because we don't like talking about money. Truth is, I don't like to talk about it and you don't like to listen. (laughs) 
But we got big money problems. And this text is going to hit home for most of us. See, alms for the poor in Jewish culture was a gift that was given to those who were struggling and destitute. It was perceived and understood in Jewish tradition and law that you had to give the tithe, uh, 10% to the temple. That's what you had to do. Now, some have argued that we shouldn't have to give uh, a tithe to the church. We are so mixed up and wrapped up, and our, our, our understanding of money is our biggest blind spot in the West. And, and this text is going to drive it home. And the next few chapters, because we get into um, Ananias and Sapphira. Woo! Where do we tackle that? But for the Jewish person, they understood that they were supposed to give 10% to the temple. Some have said, we're no longer under the law. And I agree with that. So we don't have to give 10%. We start bartering with God. And we think we can make a strong argument for it. And... And, and, and truthfully, we can, but I wonder at the heart of it, what's the real issue? I want to give 1%, 2%, 3%. I can't possibly afford to give 10%. Do you know, statistically speaking, people who make less money give more? Statistically speaking. And so somehow, as we get more, we struggle more to give more. What about the 10%? Yes, it was under the law. Yet, Abraham under the order of Melchizedek, pre-law gave 10%. And so I think what it is, is it's a freedom not to give more. (laughs) You're wondering what the heart of God is. It's not about trying to reach 10%. No, we are in freedom now. We enjoy the fullness of Christ, and we're not under the law. I agree 100%. But there's a freedom now to give more than 10%. I think that's the heartbeat of God. You can now freely give 13, 14, 15, 16, 20%. Some historically in the church have given upwards of 80%. Can you believe it? 80%. And it's not a cumulative giving. Even here, as this gentleman who's lame, he knows it's the responsibility of those going into the temple to give alms to the poor. Over and above that which you give to the temple, that's how they understood it. And that's why Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, because you're not likely to do it. You're going to get yourself in an argument, you're a good lawyer, and you're going to (laughs) win. And do as little or least as possible. See, they understood the importance of giving to those who were downtrodden, those who, who were struggling. His friends helped him get to the beautiful gate. This was a beautiful gate that was likely uh, the gate of, of Corinth. It was exceptional, according to Josephus. Beautiful in every way. And as they entered in, they, they gathered uh, to go into the inner court or the court for women. So all would pass him, and, and so he's asking for alms. He's asking for, for help, and people would give. And so Peter and John, they're about to go into the temple, and he asks to receive alms. Uh, Peter looks directly at his hand. So does John, and collectively they say, hey, look at us. Now, 
Now look at this statement. Peter says, I have no silver. I don't have gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. Friends, we we need a healthy understanding of our finances. Because it affects everything. It affects our giving to the poor and to those who are downtrodden. It affects our understanding of mission. It affects everything. Look at what Peter says. Silver and gold I do not have. I think we're so mixed up on this that missions have primarily been a financial transaction. I think that we in the West have made finances what missions is all about. And I think we've grossly erred. Listen, don't get me wrong. I I think we need to give for mission. I think we need to provide for the poor. But I think we need to do so not as a get-out-of-free-jail card. In other words, to appease our guilt and our conscience. I think we need to do it in alignment with our walk the spirit of the living God. See the difference? Why do I say that? Well, here you have Peter and John. They're dealing with this person who's lame. Uh, He's destitute. And they're following a model that is inconsistent with the Western world. We would say we need to, in many ways, earn the right to speak with our resources and finances. That's what we would say. We need to give generously. And I'm not opposed to that. But somehow... We've allowed our finances to replace the person of Jesus Christ in so many ways. And we feel good about it because we've contributed to uh, giving. We've made sacrifices. But look at Jesus and how he talks to the disciples. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 10 as he's about to send out the 12. He says, listen, I gave you all authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal every disease and every uh, affliction. He goes on to say this after he names the 12. He says, these 12 Jesus sent out, and he instructed them this way. First of all, you proclaim as you go. I love that. Proclaim as you go. Declare that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the leper. Cast out demons. You have received without paying. Now give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Take no bag on your journey. Only two tunics, one pair of sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. The instruction to Jesus with the twelve is don't take anything with you. I have wrestled with that passage of Scripture for the longest time. Why does Jesus say don't take anything? Is it because he's against giving? No. But it's so easy to replace the message with the resources. Uh, We need to be wise in the way that we dispense the resources that God has generously given to us. We need to be generous in every way, in every capacity. And the end game can't be to appease our conscience or our guilt, but to serve the Lord and his mission. There's a huge difference. Huge. See, it's not about the resources of the West. It's about the message of Christ. You may say, well, that's an isolated case. It isn't. When, Matthew sends, I mean, when Jesus sends out the 72, it's the exact same message. It's the same message. 
Go and proclaim the gospel. Go and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Go and declare the good news. I'll never forget hanging out with Moses McCanda, McCann, Moses McCanta in Zambia. And I'd kind of gotten to know him over the many trips that I went uh, there. And he said to me, Pastor Scott, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. Thanks for living life with me. I remember processing that, you know. It's not about our money. We're so Western, and we think everything's about money. We've got these huge blind spots on. Moses was saying, thanks for your presence. Nothing can replace it. Nothing. It's true in the household, isn't it? I can buy my kids all the toys they want. And it feels good initially, but there's nothing better than dad. Amen? Friends, we we need to understand the resources that God has given us, and we need to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. Why is it so critical that we have quiet time? Because we need to know the heart of God. Why is it so important that we every day set aside time to walk with God? Because it's so easy to move into a routine that is void of the Spirit. And listen, friends, everyone will pat you on the back and say, great job, look what you're doing. But we have missed the mark if we've, we've set our time and our walk and our relationship with God aside. We've missed the mark. We have. I'm so challenged by Peter and John as they enter into the temple. And this is what they do. As they enter into... Now, these are businessmen. The disciples were businessmen. They had a multitude of boats. They had an operation that that had servants. They, They had multiple... They were businessmen. And as they enter in, money and gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, arise and walk... Who does that? Who does that? See, when we walk in step with the Spirit of the living God, when He's our priority, mission happens all around us, and it's miraculous and unexplainable. Unexplainable. Silver and gold I do not have to give to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This is such a challenge to me. Sometimes we read this and the tendency is to go around, okay, I get it, I get it. I just need more faith. I'm just going to go out there and when I see someone, I'm just going to say, get up and walk. And and when they fall, we're going to go, oh, must not have enough faith. No. It's out of intimacy. It's being filled with the Spirit. It's about walking closely with the Lord. It's about hearing the invitation, the promptings, and not grieving or quenching the Spirit. 
It's not about going and saying, God, now this is what I'm going to do. You bless it, would you? Because I'll do it in your name. I'll do it in your name. Friends, this reality probably isn't on the forefront of our minds. It probably isn't even in our minds as we live life day to day. We, we, we need to realize that as we live life, as we go, there are opportunities all around us for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. And, and we need not go with the plan. The plan needs to be the person of Jesus Christ, the relationship and the filling of the Spirit. And as we walk in the fullness of the Spirit, miracles happen, small or big. By our metric, they're all big according to him. Silver and gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus, arise and walk. Arise and walk. The Lord Jesus wants to use the body of Christ to be his hands and feet. One minute Peter's preaching on the steps, and 3,000 come to Christ. The next minute he's walking into the temple, and he... Arise and walk. And why is it so important that we walk and step with the Spirit? Well, the next part of the story is going to tell us why. Because he's dragged in before the religious leaders of the day. And they want to stifle his proclamation. They want to stifle his ministry. And friends, the only thing that will get you through the persecution and the opposition is a close walk with the Lord. And both are equally important. Arise and walk. As the text continues, he took him by the right hand and immediately he, he rose to his feet and his ankles and feet were made strong. How fantastic is that? Leaping, he stood and he began to walk and they entered the temple together. It was nowhere, uh, it wasn't behind closed doors. It wasn't, wasn't sort of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, let's, no, it was in front of everyone. Everyone could see. Everyone knew him. They had walked past him time and again. Arms for the poor. They knew who he was. And now he was walking. And he was praising God, attributing to him the fullness of what God can do. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And what? Awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs, according to chapter 2, verse 43, were being done. This wasn't just a wonder, but it was a sign. It was a wonder in that he walked, but it was a sign that what? Pointed to Christ. That Christ wasn't done. Yes, he had died and he was risen and he was still at work. It wasn't just a wonder, it was a sign. And all the people saw that and they were amazed. They recognized him, you see, as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They were filled. Let's stand together. Let me ask you first, what's your walk like God with? When was the last time you spent time with him? Just to be, not to perform, just to be. When was the last time that you got on your knees physically and, and humbled yourself in his presence and said, Lord, I am yours? When was the last time you gathered together for a corporate worship and prayer meeting? When was the last time? How are you doing with God? What things are, are, are competing in your life for the presence and ministry of Jesus Christ?
Friends, we've got blinders. We've got blinders. May we ask God to open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the truth of our reality. And then, like Isaiah, that we would repent and turn to him. What's the fruit of your ministry like? What's your relationship with resources, with money, with finances? Do you hold them like this or like this? Do you sense you are a steward to the things that God has given you, or are you entitled because you've worked so hard and you deserve it? Has money's replaced mission in your life? Are you quick to give? Give of your resources, but not of yourself. The power of presence, friends, it means far more than the resources we have. May we seek him. In so doing, may we be his hands and feet. And so, Father, work on us, we pray. We are guilty, each one of us, me included. May our intimacy with you increase. And then may we be available as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.